Many of you know that my family and I, we moved from Southern California 18, 20 months ago. And I gotta tell you, even though we were only there for a handful of years, coming back has been a little bit of a shift when it comes to landscaping. I know that probably isn't what you thought I was going to say, but hear me out. When we lived, in, when we lived there in Southern California, it was a drought environment. Uh, rarely did we have to pull weeds. We were hardly ever allowed to mow or to uh, water our lawn, which meant we didn't have to mow it as often. Uh, and most of our plants were drought tolerant. And so moving back to the Midwest, we are moving into the land of, of lush greens and, and bushes and, and so much beautiful landscaping, which means a lot of maintenance, <laughs> a lot of pulling weeds, a lot of trimming, a lot more mowing, a lot more weed whacking. And I got to tell you, when we moved here, my dream was to have a home, now this might sound crazy, but again, bear with me, my dream was to have a home with hydrangeas. <laughs> hydrangeas are my absolute favorite plant. I've never had a home with hydrangea bushes, and I always dreamed of, of having a house with a big, beautiful bush of hydrangeas out front. I love hydrangeas so much that we had them in our wedding even. They were all the way down the aisles, and they were my bouquets. And so when we found our house nestled in the woods in Downers Grove, one of the first things I noticed was a giant, bush of hydrangeas. That, among many other things, I knew that that was the house. Now, my husband is Mr. Do-It-Yourself on all the things. He doesn't like to hire people to do much. He does his own oil changes. He does his own tire changes. When things break in the house, he fixes it. And it is really great having a handyman in the home. Uh, it's, it's, he has saved us so much money, and it's a wonderful blessing. But there are times where I'm like, hey, could we just hire someone maybe every now and then? Uh, and, and recently, this summer, Jeff has been on travel quite a bit. He's been traveling all across the country and unable to be home throughout the week, and he's just home on weekends. And our landscaping started to get a little bit out of control. I walked outside one morning, and I thought, we are living in a jungle. I don't know how to keep up with this. So I, I, I came up with this plan in my mind. I was going to convince Jeff that we needed to hire landscapers to come and do just a quick cleanup. So I had the conversation all planned out and the sales pitch ready to go, and I said, babe, could we just hire someone? They'll just come, and you're working. You don't want to spend the weekends working on the landscaping. Don't you want to be with the family? He said, no. He said, it's way too much money. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just spend the weekend, and I'm just going to get it done. He said, just tell me exactly what you want, and I'll make it happen. So I wrote up a plan. We talked through everything, what hedging, what mulching, what weeds, what trimming, and all the things that needed to be done. And, and we, we, we went off on our ways. And he spent the entire day working so hard. And I was so excited when I pulled up, and I, I looked at at our lawn, I looked at the, the bushes and everything was trimmed up so great. And he was so excited, he was so proud. By the way, I have all the permission in the world to share this story. Uh, he was so proud of the work and he said, what do you think? And I scanned and I looked at the front uh, garden. I thought, oh goodness, look at there's no weeds. And I looked over there and there was beautiful mulching and, and the bushes were trimmed. And then I looked over at my hydrangeas and they were gone. And I didn't want him to think I was upset or complaining because I was so grateful for all the work that he had done. And I just kept smiling. I said, so what happened to the hydrangeas? And he said, well, they needed trimming. They'll come back next year. And I was like, it's July. 
We've got a few more months for them to blossom and bloom. You see, I had a plan, but we were on different pages. Do you ever feel like you have a plan, you have a vision, you know exactly how things need to go, but someone else is on a different page as you? Or you have expectations, you, you have this vision of how things ought to look, but someone else thinks it needs to look a different way. Raise your hand if you've ever experienced that or type in the chat if that's you. Come on now, we've all lived that. Now how about this? Have you ever been on different pages with God? Have you ever had a plan for your life, an expectation? And maybe you even think it's God's plan, but things do not go the way that you think that they should and you suddenly realize, God, we're on different pages here. This isn't the path I thought I should take. This path is way too windy, maybe even upside down or backwards. What are you doing here, God? Well, as we continue our series in the book of Kings, one of the things that we discover is that God's people over and over again are on completely different pages with God. See, God's people were God's covenant people, meaning they had a special relationship. God promised to always be their God, and God wanted them to be their, his people And in being his people, they would worship one God and one God alone. And being his people, they would live in the ways of God. But what we see is God's people choose different paths. And so where we left off last week with Dan is God raises up this prophet by the name of Elijah. And Elijah sees God's people behaving badly and walking on the path that God did not have for them. And he comes with quite the subversive word. Uh, He wasn't very popular probably. Uh, He probably caused quite a stir in the community because listen up, this is where we left off last week in in chapter 17, verse one. Says this, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, There will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So here's why this is is significant. God's hope for them, the covenant that they had, is that they would worship one God and one God alone, but they chose not to do that. In fact, they were worshiping another God by the name of Baal. Now, Baal was worshipped for many different reasons, but one of the reasons that he was worshipped is he was considered to be the storm god. In fact, whenever it rained, or whenever it stormed, for those people, they believed it was proof that Baal was alive. When it would rain and storm, they would see, ah, see, look it. Baal is providing for us. Baal is alive. Baal is good. And so God raises up this prophet, Elijah, and Elijah declares, it's no longer going to rain. Now, at first glance, it might seem like this is a punishment, as though God is punishing the land. But another way we might be able to look at it is that God is undermining this pseudo-reign of this God, lowercase g, by the name of Baal. He is undermining this 
by saying that there will be no more rain. Now this would have created quite the stir and controversy for the people of the land. Without water, they would not be able to survive. Droughts were devastating in those days. And so Elijah, he, he prophesies this, and you can imagine afterwards he might have been thinking, okay, now what, God? How am I going to survive? Well, God has a plan. Look at verses two and four. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Now this is a wild plan on a number of different fronts. Can you imagine if God revealed God's plan to you and said, during the drought, I'm going to feed you through ravens? You would think that is just crazy town. Well, this is even more crazy town to the ancient reader. You see, ravens were considered to be unclean animals. In other words, you weren't to eat them. You weren't to even be near them or touch them. They were forbidden. And yet at the command of the Lord, God is going to care for Elijah through ravens. And so what we see here is God acting outside of the boundaries of how we think God ought to act. But after some time, the brooks dry up. Now let's take a look at verse 7. It says, sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with the food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water and a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, and we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but first make a small loaf and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. And this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. And she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. The jar of the flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Again, another amazing miracle. But God is again acting outside of the boundaries of even probably Elijah's expectations. Elijah is sent off to go into the land of Baal worshipers, not a safe place for the guy who is undermining the God that they worship. And he comes across a widow who scholars agree was also likely a Baal worshiper. 
And on top of that, she was of the most vulnerable of society. You wouldn't look to the vulnerable or the marginalized of society to care for your needs, and yet God directs him to this widow. And as he asks for bread and water, she says, I just have sticks. I'm going to go home and die with my family. And Elijah makes this incredible proclamation that he receives from the Lord, and they are able to eat for days and months to come. Again, another crisis moment. Elijah may find himself wondering, what is God going to do? And God then works in incredibly unconventional ways. The story then reaches a climax here at the end. You almost might think that Elijah feels as though he is at the very end of his rope and wondering if he is on completely different pages with God. Verse 18, the widow comes. She says, what do you have against me? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? So her son becomes ill. She, of course, is blaming it on Elijah and Elijah's God, Yahweh. And so what does Elijah do? He responds. He says, give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. We see this final crisis, which really is the peak of all three crises within this text. As I read through this this week, I wondered, what were the other questions that Elijah was asking God? What are the other things he was wondering? God, I've done exactly what you told me to do. How could you now allow this to happen? God, haven't I been faithful? God, haven't I been living within your will and following your commands and living obediently? Have I not been a man of faith? Have I not already put myself in harm's way for the sake of what you are doing in this world? God, this wasn't the plan. Different pages. Have you ever wondered things like these? Have you ever prayed prayers like that? Have you ever questioned or cried out to God in the night? God, I've been doing what you've asked me to do. I've been living the life. What have I done wrong? Where are you? You know, it's those moments where in one moment everything is great and in the next moment it's not. Where in one moment we have the job of our dreams and the next moment it's ripped out from underneath us. Where in one moment we have our health and the next moment we receive a diagnosis that is less than ideal or tragic. 
where in one moment we did everything right in raising our kids, and in the next moment they make a decision that is completely and utterly baffling. Where in one moment we've worked so hard to build up the business of our dreams, and the next moment the doors are shuttered. Or where in one moment you married that person of your dreams, and in the next moment they are not at all who you believed they were. Y'all, I'm only 40 years young. And I can tell you just after 40 years, life often doesn't go the way we think it should. Life happens. There's a popular image floating around the internet. I wonder if you've seen it. It's where we have a plan And we think plan A should go just like that. If we do exactly as everything is in the plan, we should be able to reach our destination. We should be able to get from here to there. Of course, we might always be ready for a plan B, and plan B might be a little bit more difficult or up and down or trying. But neither of these are usually reality. In fact, real life is a lot more like that third image. Twists and turns, ups and downs, false starts, late starts, moving in reverse, coming up with new plans, questions and cries in the night. It's a mess. But here's what I'm also learning. It's a holy mess when God is involved. See, there's a number of different things that we discover in this text that reveals quite the mess and predicament that Elijah finds himself in. And the first thing we discover is this. God is present in the mess and is always working to carve out a path for us even if the paths are unusual. Even when they're unconventional even when nothing about it makes sense. God is still in it. I was listening this morning to one of my favorite worship songs by Hillsong, and there's a lyric in there that gets me every time. There's another in the fire standing next to me. There was another one in the fire standing next to me. I love the way J.I. Packer talks about it. He says this, what matters supremely is not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact that he knows me. I'm graven in the palms of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is nothing, there is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic based at every point on prior knowledge about the worst about me. So that no discovery now can disillusion him about me. And the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench quench his determination to bless me. 
Here's where I want you to take from that incredible quote. God is wildly for you. God is wildly for blessing you, lavishing with you with love, purpose, plans, and pathways. God is absolutely committed to you. God is committed to you when you are tangled up in a mess and God is working to prepare a path through. God is committed to you and is for you when it seems as though you are stuck in reverse. God is working to establish your steps forward. God is for you when you feel as though you are alone in the wilderness and no one else is there. God is present, working, speaking, calling. God is for you when life seems like it is full of so much loss and suffering and pain. Remember this, God will never ever, God will never waste a drop of your suffering. God won't waste a second of your suffering. Not even a millisecond. And God is working always to redeem your purpose, to redeem your story, to redeem your pathway, and to establish your steps even when life seems like it is a mess. The second thing we discover in this text is that God often acts outside of the borders and boundaries of our plans and expectations. Sometimes we create these boundaries and borders and we, we want God to act but we think it should go a particular way, don't we? Often, God works in unconventional ways, ways that we could never dream up, ways that we could never even imagine. And listen up, young ones. It isn't if messes and suffering comes, but it's when. In 2016, when me and my family, when we packed up and we moved to Southern California, we said, good riddance, snow. We said, good riddance, shoveling. Good riddance, polar vortex. Good riddance, weeding. And we said, hello, sunny Southern California. And when we went there, y'all, we had a plan. When we pulled up into our home, we had everything mapped out. We were going to go hiking on the weekends, weren't we, Jeff? Every weekend, we would go to the beaches on our days off. Out of the church that I was pastoring, I was going to pastor there for 35 years. We were going to retire there. Jeff had his dream job at NASA. He was going to stay there forever. Grandparents were going to come out in the winter months and become snowbirds and live with us and help with the grandchildren and play with the grandchildren. My parents would come out and they were looking for homes to buy out there. We had everything mapped out. Toto, I don't think I'm in Southern California anymore. Here I am. And my journey over the last few years has been those twists and those turns and those ups and downs. And there were times where I cried out in the night, God, what are you going to do in this mess? And over and over again, I've seen God over and over again, we have discovered the incredible blessing of clinging to God even in the mess. And even when we don't know what the next step forward is, God is already working to establish those steps. Here we are. There's no mountains, there's no beaches, well, saltwater beaches. My dad's not here. 
But God has shocked me with his goodness over and over again. And here you are. More than likely, many of you know, can relate, can understand what I'm talking about. Maybe you're in that mess right now. Here's what I want to say to you. Pay close attention. Listen up. God is working in ways that you could never dream or imagine. And in that mess, cling to Jesus. Cling to him. Cling to him. Because the third thing that we discover in this text, as we see this miracle of this child being healed, is that God is the giver and sustainer of life. Wilderness happens, trials happen, pain happens, suffering happens, life happens, messes happen, it all happens. And we have a choice when life happens. We can try to sustain ourselves through the insanity, we can muscle through it. We try to muster up the strength, just get through this, or try to escape it, or come up with our own plan and our own way out of this. Or we can look to the giver of life and the one that can bring sustainment through the valley. You see, when we look at Elijah, especially in that final miracle, he could have said to the widow, Azarephath, yeah, this is a bummer. Maybe if we just wait and see what happens, we'll get through this somehow but he actually does something very important. He falls to his knees and he cries out to God. You see, we have a choice when life happens. We can muscle through it or we can turn our wilderness into a house of worship and prayer. We can muscle through it or we can turn our wilderness into a house of worship and prayer, and that is exactly what we see Elijah do. He stopped, and the mess, and the wilderness, and he turned it into a house of worship and prayer, knowing that God was the giver of life, and that God was the one that did, and will, and will always sustain him. My friends, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know where you are today or what mess you've been in. It's not if, but it's when. What matters is how we respond. Today, I choose that when those moments come to turn my wilderness into a house of worship and prayer. I hope you do too. And allow the God of abundance to shock you with his goodness. Because that is exactly what we see Elijah do time and time again, to which we will return next week as the story of the book of Kings continues. Let us pray. God, there's always another standing in the fire next to us. It's you. 
I pray for those this morning that have sand in their eyes that can't even see through the desert. God, I pray that you would give them eyes to see your presence, that they may turn to you and find sustainment through the wilderness. God, I pray that those who are desperate for a way today, help them to taste your abundant blessings. God, we cling to you with everything. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.